Good morning, Four Oaks Church. It is Pastor Paul. It's Tuesday morning, May 3rd, leading up to my favorite day of the year, tomorrow morning, May the 4th, be with you. But that's just the nerd in me leaking out. We have more pressing, important business to attend to from Romans chapter 9. So we call these 10 or 15 minute weekday segments that we do Romans Rewind because we are sort of running parallel to our sermon, preaching sermon series on Sunday mornings at Four Oaks. We're going through the book of Romans. And as a refresher, remember Romans one through eight are the grand exposition of Paul's gospel. Um, he talks about the meaning of the gospel, the need for the gospel, the blessings of the gospel, the assurances of the gospel, which all find their fulfillment and promise in Jesus, of course but which presents this existential theological problem because the people in Rome would have been looking around noticing that there are not very many Jews in the um, audience, that the bulk of the Jewish people have rejected their own Messiah. It would have raised concerns. It would have raised questions. Paul has the word of God failed. If it's failed for the old covenant people, how can we be sure and trust that it will be true for us, his new covenant people. And that's why Paul writes in Romans 9, he talks about the anguish in his heart uh, that his kinsmen, the Jewish people, have fallen away. He says he wished he could be a curse on their behalf. But then he turns his attention to this theological, uh, naughty theological issue, has the word of God failed. And Paul's um, emphasis, and we saw this last Sunday in Romans 9, 6 through 13 was no, absolutely not. The word of God has not failed because God's sovereign choice in salvation in election stands. It was never intended to apply to all people regardless of their heart condition, whether it was ethnicity, race, socioeconomic status, um, geography. Not, none of those things were the decisive factor in salvation. The decisive factor in salvation was God's unconditional election, um, exemplified by Isaac being the child of promise and by Jacob being the chosen one to move forward with the promises. And this was all sort of captured under this idea of, of what, again, theologians call unconditional election, which means God's sovereign choice outside of someone, that God, by virtue of being God, is not dependent upon any creature's action to govern his own action. He, he is the decisive force and work in salvation. And so one of the things that we, that we mentioned yesterday is, is, or I mentioned Sunday that we unpacked yesterday, was this idea that if that doesn't land on us, um, as a, a, or it lands on us in a difficult way, it might be because we don't truly know the true condition of our hearts and ourselves apart from Christ. And we talked about yesterday how we're, we're not just sick, but we're dead. We talked about Ezekiel 37 and Ephesians 1 and 1 Corinthians 2 and 3, that the natural things are not discerned, or the natural thing, the things for the natural man are not spiritually discerned. We, we can't, the natural man cannot understand the things of God, can't, as we said on Sunday, can't even see the kingdom, Right unless he has been born again, regenerated by the Spirit. So we, we kind of talked about that grim piece about ourselves. Now, we want to look at the flip side of the coin today um, as to what God does um, 
in response to our deadness or what must be done on, on, on God's part because of our deadness. Now, we, we looked at this, of course, these examples of Isaac in, versus Ishmael, Jacob versus Esau on Sunday, but we have to ask, are there other places in Scripture where we see this, see this idea of God sovereignly electing? And there's several places that we could go. And let's start with Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. Going to be Bible drill this morning for you slackers out there. Okay, look at verse 44 of Acts 13. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out loudly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are returning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Now here's the key phrase. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So appointed obviously means to determine ahead of time. Um, you don't, you know, you if you receive an appointment to an office, okay, you can't appoint yourself. Someone else has to appoint you or elect you to it. And Paul says that's why the Gentiles responded in this circumstance, and the Jews did not, okay? Um, flip over to Acts chapter 16. Um, let's look at the conversion of Lydia. Okay, look at verse 13 of Acts 16. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of, city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So in other words, here's this Lydia. She doesn't, I mean, she's a God-fearer, which means she acknowledges the one true God, but doesn't know the way of Christ or the gospel. Um, she's minding her own business. She's doing her thing, but God is preparing her hearts. He divinely, sovereignly directs Paul and Barnabas to her, and he opens her heart so that she can hear and respond to the gospel. Um, this is much the same thing that Jesus says in John six forty four. Okay, no one, John six thirty four can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. In other words, in order for there to be a conversion that happens, there has to be a sovereign wooing. There has to be God um, giving life to dead bones. There has to be a beckoning. There has to be a calling forth from the grave. Um, we, we see like a metaphor of this, do we not, in the um, in the raising of Lazarus, right? Lazarus can't raise himself, but how does God produce supernatural life in um, 
in Lazarus, he speaks a word, he commands, he calls forth Lazarus from the tomb. So, so we see this all over scripture and we could continue, we, we could, there's so many places we could, we see this, right? Ephesians one and how God predestined. All of this is to say that it's not that we don't have to respond to the gospel in faith and repentance. It's not that we don't have a will to exercise. What it does point to is this idea that God's will is the decisive one in salvation. And because God's will is the decisive one, that, that has a couple of practical implications for us. Okay, let me just mention a couple um, for us to think about. One, this should be deeply humbling to us, right? Um, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So we, we do boast in our salvation, but we're not boasting in ourselves. We're not boasting in our intellect, in our education. We're boasting in Christ. And um, it really helps us have a position of humility and adoration and submission to God. Two, it can help us really develop empathy and sympathy for others, okay? Particularly those who don't know Christ. So it's very easy to look at our culture and bemoan uh, the attacks against Christian values and not to say that those aren't real. But in many ways, people are simply behaving in accordance with their nature. And what is called for is a supernatural sovereign work of revival, of sovereign grace to intrude upon people's lives. And so it can give us real empathy, sympathy for people who are outside the faith. And three, it's really a point that should drive us to prayer. So if, if we find ourselves prayerless, then we may say intellectually, theologically, we believe in unconditional election, but practically, functionally, we don't. When we don't pray, and I am as guilty as any, what we're really saying is, God, you're not the decisive person in this effort. I'm the decisive person. And it's up to me. It's up to, to my efforts, my work, my ability, my intellect. And so just keeping those three things in mind, that understanding this doctrine drives us to humility, to empathy, and to prayerfulness. Um, when, we, when we begin to grab hold of those things, then we know that the Word of God is moving from a mere intellectual sort of engagement with our, with our minds to a deep heartfelt engagement um, and transformation. And so again, I just encourage you, as you read the Scriptures, as you read Romans, see how many times Paul points to God as the decisive mover in the shaping and transformation of people's hearts. And thank goodness he is because we could not do it ourselves. Okay, could not do it ourselves. All right, that's for today. We'll be back here tomorrow to unpack some more of this. Thanks for joining us, Lord. We pray as we go forth today, you would give us a, a heart of humility, of just thankfulness, gratefulness for your sovereign grace in our lives. Lord, help, help, it all, help us also to have a, a healthy dose of empathy for those who are outside the faith, for those who don't know you. Lord, what do you tell us in your word? Forgive them, Lord, they know not what they do. And then thirdly, Lord, we, we want to be driven to prayerfulness. If it's really true that you're sovereign, that you are decisive, that in you and you alone is spiritual life, then we are in a very needy position 
and we want to be prayers to you. Lord, we ask these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a good one.